We come to Genesis chapter 38 this morning, and I'll be on a personal level with you if I were to be the type of preacher who just picked the topics I wanted to preach, I would not preach this chapter. Uh, It's a very sordid chapter in the record of God's Word. And as you'll know, in the public reading of Scripture, we did not read through all of the verses here, although we're not ashamed of one verse of Scripture. The Bible covers the entire gamut of human life and emotion and sin. There's nothing overlooked in God's Word. Some portions are better read in secret between you and the Lord, and the Holy Spirit to instruct and guide and to show you exactly what He has for you there. However, we will deal with the entire chapter this morning, the Lord willing, in our study. When you study straight through the book of Genesis or any book, as we do verse by verse, you come to portions that deal with the sins of human beings that uh, we all like to wish and, and think that are not there and that do not take place, of people who ought to know better and people who don't. But I will tell you that in every verse of Scripture, in every chapter of Scripture, is absolutely loaded with the blessing and the promise and the instruction of God. Only the Holy Spirit can give us illumination and, and light and wisdom, and we ask Him to do that as we very reverently approach the Word of God as we ought to, whether we're looking at John 3.16 or Psalm 23 or Genesis chapter 38. I've entitled the message, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. Because the prominent character in the chapter is Judah. And I will call to mind at the very outset that Christ our Savior, the Messiah, comes from the the tribe, the line, the tribe, the tribe of Judah. He comes from that lineage. We see great grace throughout this chapter, great sin and great grace. We never magnify the sin, but we always magnify the God of grace behind it all. And he has recorded these things for us. And so we would do well to heed the things which we have heard, lest at any time we let them slip. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I would not dare apologize for anything that you have allowed in your sovereignty, in your grace, in your providence, or in what the blessed Holy Spirit of God has chosen to record for us. And so we believe very prominently and very Assuredly that the Holy Spirit of God moved upon men of old to pen these words. We're not following cunningly devised fables. We're not following tabloid sensationalism. That's not what this is. This is the holy record from the creator and sustainer and the redeemer of the universe that you've given for time immemorial for us to learn. The things which were written aforetime were written for our learning, our admonition. Lord, may not any of us think that we are so far in grace that we could not slip, that we're so far in our knowledge of biblical things that we could not make disastrous choices and do unspeakable things. So with that in mind, we come very humbly, as we ought to at any time, before the holy record and ask that you deal with each heart and speak to us by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
we've wedged here between Genesis chapter 37 and chapter 39, the detailed account of the story of Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. It may seem to us as humans incongruous as so many of the workings and the ways of God seem to have this story here, but it takes place at the same time of the other events that are transpiring in, in Joseph's life. Joseph has been sold into bondage by his brothers. He's been taken to, to Egypt. And in this parenthesis of time here, there are 21 years, roughly that, from his, his being sold into bondage until he's made right, reconciled to his brothers. And in the meantime, life does not stand still, does it? It is interesting that the Holy Spirit picks one of those brothers, Judah, and gives us an account of his life in the meantime. At the time Joseph was sold as a slave, he was 17 years of age. And when he gets elevated to the place of, for lack of better words, the prime minister of Egypt of sorts, he is around 30. And during that interval of about 13 years, the Holy Spirit records these events from from Judah's biography. There was seven years of plenty, you'll remember, and then two years of famine, and so that's where we get the number of about 22 years between the cruelty of Joseph's brothers and, and selling him as a slave and the time that they are reconciled to their brother. During that time and all through this story, we see grace emblazoned upon all of it. And I'm preaching ahead of myself, but the fact that they were ever reconciled at all is absolutely all glory and praise to the Lamb that was slain. It just doesn't happen, does it? Apart from grace. We think about God's grace, but reconciliation not only with us to God by the work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the paramount in our minds of grace, but wherever true grace abounds, there is reconciliation not only vertically but horizontally. During that interval, his brother Judah marries, has three sons, and it seems a rapid succession, has two sons to die, buries his wife, and sadly gets involved, albeit unknowingly, that's not the point, he does get involved with his his own daughter-in-law in an illicit affair. One of the, the glaring and often painful characteristics of the Holy Spirit's record that we have observed throughout the book of Genesis is that it does not gloss gloss over the truth about sin, doesn't it? Not in the most esteemed of God's saints or those in, in line of great privilege from an esteemed family of Abraham's descendants. The Holy Spirit does not overlook any of these things, nor of the horrible consequences of sin. It's one thing just to point out sin and say, well, that's horrible. That's a stench. That's a, an abomination. But the Bible carefully not only tell, warns us about sin and, and gives accounts of when it takes place, but so carefully does the Holy Spirit show us the rippling effect down through generations, the consequences of sin that Satan and the, the flesh never tell us at that moment of temptation that this is going to alter your life in a way that you will not recognize 10 years from now, even though God's grace intervenes and as it so often and so miraculously does. The results of Adam's fall, we had read there in 
In Romans chapter 5, as by one man's sin disobedience, death passed upon some men. No. All men. For that all have sinned. And by the obedience of one, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, many were made righteous. The results of Adam's fall continue to every generation. We have in our family a disease that passes to every generation. It, does nev- it never skips a generation. It's a horrible, debilitating disease. And in, in that generation, it affects a certain amount of people. I want you to know that the sin of Adam never skips a generation. And that precious baby that you're holding in your arms who seems the epitome of sweetness and all things good. I call it sweet depravity. Because behind that sweet little smile and that delicate touch is the depravity of the human heart. It does not skip a generation. It passes to all men. And when we get old enough to do so, we will sin because we are sinners. Not one of Adam's descendants are exempt Joseph's gracious life shines brightly with this backdrop of Judah's selfish, unprincipled, and uncontrolled life. It stands out in such a dark contrast. And I I think that's why the Holy Spirit, if you will, wedges it in the middle of the story of Joseph's life. It's like we're reading somebody's biography and all of a sudden we turn a chapter and say, why is this here? We read the whole story and we find out exactly why. A question arises as we study the biblical record because we are mere humans and we have our own ways of doing things. But one thing we see as we study the Bible is my thought is not your, are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. Why would God, I ask, and I'm sure you'd have to ask, just knowing what we've known, if you've never read the story before, and I, I assign you to read chapter 38 in detail as you go home. If Why would God ever use a man, not that he would include the story in the biblical record, but why he would ever use a man like Judah from which to send his own son, the Savior, into the world? That's the question, isn't it? While we're asking and pondering that question, I would submit to you and to the preacher uh, to ask another question, and it would be this. How could God be gracious to any of us, knowing us as we know us? Knowing us like he knows us, how could he be gracious to any of us? And so as we peer into the window of another person's life or on the precipice of this record given to us, let us never lose fact that God's grace is so vast and so amazing, and so unspeakable, that before you point to Judah and wonder how he could deserve it, remember there are other fingers pointing back to you, several more. How could you deserve God's great grace either? It's all due to his sovereign, matchless, immeasurable grace greater than our sin. The songwriter aptly named the song, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. Judah's share from the sale of his brother, if you can imagine, is two measly portions, two measly silver coins or pieces of silver. What a trade. 
And yet we often, when we look at life, that the, the trade-off of sin and the, and the, va- the inestimable value of life, they're so far removed, aren't they? The, the gratification of sin in an instant, and we, we never consider the lives that will be influenced behind it and the great discrepancy between what we're doing and the value of what it represents. Joseph's life, a few pieces of silver. Obviously, as Judah goes back to the family compound, his father is inconsolable. Can you imagine the grief of aging Jacob, who has had his own share of hard knocks? This blow is quite a blow that, that Joseph, his beloved son, his, as the Holy Spirit records for us, his favorite son, has, he thinks, been killed And I'm sure Jacob is wondering, where's the grace of God in all of that? How could this befall me? How could I be called to bear this cross at this stage in my life? All those things that go through human reasoning when that that kind of news comes and the beautiful embroidered robe is laid there before him. He sees what he thinks is his son's blood and he just never gets over it, humanly speaking. That grief is so great. We must admit that Judah has some twinge of conscience because he has to leave. And the Holy Spirit records for us in chapter 38, verse 1, and it came to pass. In other words, um, Judah reached a point where he just probably could not uh, go along or witness his father's grief anymore that he, in time, the time that Judah went down from his brethren. He left the family compound. That's the way some people deal with problems, don't they? They just leave. Grief is too bad. The situation is too horrible. This is not what I signed on for. I hurt too much. You wounded me too much. I'll just leave. As if leaving will do anything. All leaving does is just make the physical space wider. But hearts aren't aren't divided by physical space. Problems aren't solved by leaving if the situation has not been dealt with biblically and so judah just says i just can't take this anymore i can't stand to see daddy crying his own guilt has to just be killing him he decides to leave it's interesting to notice when we use leaving as a choice to solve a problem the place where we go is usually always the wrong place have you noticed that in scripture i'll just leave well he doesn't go to a place of spirituality where people are pointing him back to the things of god and getting right with god he goes to a canaanite friend those friends that all of us acquaintances that all of us have that can lead us astray if we give in to their advice and that's just what happens Here's the beginning of Judah's sinful choices. Hera, the Adolamite, was a friend of his that had great influence over him. He was one of the Canaanites that cursed people that that God will one day annihilate because of their horrible, horrible, unspeakable sinfulness. Three times in this record, you'll see Hera's name come to the forefront or his influence. First is Jacob's friend. Now, friendship is a wonderful thing. We praise God for friends, those, those people we can call on at a time of need, those who come alongside of us and encourage us, and we know there are some people there in our lives that we can go to and it will help us. And Judah needs some good advice. He's not going to get it from Hera, but he does have a, a common kind of a, you know, a kindred spirit, and they cry on each other's shoulders. And Hera says, I'll tell you what you ought to do. They're having sheep, sheep shearing time down in the, the valley there. Why don't you go down there and just have a big time? It's like going to Mardi Gras from 
for uh, in New Orleans for just to drown your grief. Go somewhere where nobody will know you. Eat, drink, and party, and be merry. No, you know what happens there stays there. You know the old adage, and just you just just go and have a big time, and just let it, you know, just rip it up and have a big time. That's what Hera tells Judah to do, and that's the last thing he needs to hear. But guess what? That's what he does. It all starts when Judah goes to stay with his friend. And there he meets a woman whom he, he marries. He, I'm sure he didn't bargain on that happening going to Mardi Gras, do you? But that's what happens. He marries a woman and then the story slides downward sordidly from that point. Verses 2 through 5 give us a snapshot of Judah's bride. This we know. She was a Canaanite, off limits, shouldn't have married her. Ingrained in her, her psyche, in her life, was anything but submission to the one true creator God. She was, uh, her father was Shua, and uh, she has three sons, Er, er Onan, and Shelah. There's no indication that, that uh, for, by, for example, that uh, Judah gets any advice at all from his father in this marriage. And we notice how carefully Abraham and Isaac dealt with the marriages and had concern about it, but there's no indication on this, as he's down partying, that he, that he writes back or gets a message back, Daddy, I met this girl, what do you think about her? That's not in this picture. There's so many things wrong with the decisions of Judah, but he marries and has three sons. The Canaanites were pagan of the worst kind. Their very worship was absolutely illicit sexuality, and that's all we'll say about it. Their, their entire worship service, if you want to call it that, was so perverted and abominable. Judah had no business in a marrying with the Canaanites. And even, as we've mentioned, their religious worship was vile and sordid. It seems as if she had absolutely no interest in the one true God, nor his or, and that this, this disinterest in, in spiritual things seemed to overwhelmingly influence her three sons. And when you put the whole story together, the Bible tells us that Er, or Er, his name means watcher or observer, and he certainly did. He observed his mother's uh, pagan ways and his father's hypocritical ways. Isn't it something how our faults are just like on display, like on a giant screen? And, and those are the things that our children pick up on and, and see and emulate. Onan means strength. Sheila means he that breaks. And all were named by their mother. The Bible tells us that uncharacteristically of the time, the father had no part in the naming of the children. This shows us she led the show. She did all the deciding. And she passed that on to her sons who had no concern or care like Esau of old, for birthright, spiritual things, anything of God. He seems to, the Bible tells us that this was a sign, or we seem to see this was a sign that Judah had submitted the headship of his home to the dominant ways of the Canaanites. Do you see why the Bible says, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers? How shall they agree, the scripture says? How can light and darkness get together how can satan and christ have one thing in common those questions are raised one of the lessons we learn i'll just go ahead and tell you the application as we go along won't that be a little bit more helpful than summarizing it all at the end 
One of the, the lessons that we learn from this record is the daily dangers and temptations of being among Canaanites. Now, we are in the world, and the Lord has chosen for us to be here. He does not save us and rapture us to heaven. That would be glory, wouldn't it? You know, you come to know Christ, and poof, we're in the land of delight. No. He leaves us here for an interval of time, however long he has determined, for us to show people what the gospel looks like in a fallen, frail body, clay pot like we have, that gets sick, that has family problems, that has disagreements with one another, have work situations. All that stuff that happens to Canaanites happens to, to, to the church, to Israelites, to the God's people. I'm just using these terms loosely here. But here we are living among Canaanites, but we're sorely warned by the precept and the, the declarations of Scripture to not adopt the Canaanite philosophy or ways. Be not conformed to this world, child of God. I beg you, the apostle says, please, 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 please don't be conformed by this world. But opposite of that, be you transformed. The word is metamorphosis. What happens to that, 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 that caterpillar, that ugly little caterpillar? It becomes a beautiful butterfly. And we're in the process of becoming that. We'll wind up in glorification. But this process, be not conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may know what is that good and perfect will of God. The Bible promises us that we can. But he leaves us here to work out this salvation, fear and trembling, among the Canaanites. Remember Abraham told Lot, the, 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 we're brethren, and the Bible tells us the Canaanites are in the land. They're observing, so we're left here. And one of the, the lessons we learn here is the daily dangers and temptations because even the godliest of God's people can, can change their philosophy of right and wrong. And okay, well, and especially when, when family members have decided to, to go a different way, then the parents begin to say, well, maybe that we've held that position to... You know, maybe that's not what the scripture teaches. And all of a sudden, everything's up for, you know, discussion and to, to become new, some new thing. We live in Canaan. We're to, to learn the heavenly ways and live them in our lives among the unsaved. We're to be salt and light. We are salt and light. Warren Wearsby puts it, there's always the temptation to live like your neighbors instead of like the people of God. As Jacob's son becomes of age, again, his, his Judah's son becomes of age, that important thing that parents never see until it's time for their children to marry. Oh, this is what mother and daddy were worried about. You know, Young people, whether you know it or not, your parents are very concerned that you marry the right person. They know how absolutely... All important that decision is, outside of your conversion, the most important thing that you'll do is the one you say, I do to. And contrary to what Canaan teaches, it's not just, if you will, if you don't, you can, you can leave it, like it, lump it, all the rest. That's not the scriptural place. You, you say, I do, and you, you covenant before the Lord to, to live out. This gift that God has given is a very picture of God's salvation and his grace of Christ and his church. And as his son becomes of age, he wants to find him a mate, a bride, and time has made a change in Judah's thinking. It's something how that can happen. When you bring that baby home from the, from the, the hospital, all of a sudden life, the, the, 
what's right and wrong and all the, the things of life really become into better focus, don't they? And then when they get to be marrying age, you see these things. While he had no input from his own father, Jacob, in deciding who he'd marry, he arranges to marry for, for uh, Ur, his oldest son. He wants to help and advise Aaron, Onan, and Sheila in their marriages. In fact, verse 6 tells us that he took a wife from, of Aaron for Ur, and her name was Tamar. This is where the story, and I I know it seems to be belaboring, but this is how Tamar comes into the picture. Judah picks her out for his son. He sees in her something that that he sees in none of the other girls there, and he's hoping this is the one that will straighten his son out. Some parents pray for that. I hope my son or daughter marries somebody that can straighten them out. That rarely happens, but that's what sometimes parents think. If he'd just marry the right girl, she'd straighten him out. If he'd just marry the right boy, he'd start... Did I say that right? If they married the right person, you know what I'm trying to say. They would just they would they would straighten out and do the right thing. But that rarely happens. What you bring into the marriage is what you are, and you ought to become what you should be before you ever come before the Lord and say, "I do." Obviously, Judah knew that his sons had a weak character. Every one of them. We know that because God kills two of them. Very drastic things take place in Genesis chapter 38. I didn't write it. The Holy Spirit did. And God is performing the the things here. And so all we can do is stand aside and say, well, this is the God of creation. We better learn what he has to say and bow before his omnipotent ways. Judah knew that his sons were weak and had no spiritual inclinations whatsoever. And he knows that that they are in the prophetic line of the Messiah. This he knows. He was hoping the wife he selected for his oldest son would would be a good influence on this indifferent young boy who just had no goals in life, just aimlessly going through life. And, And any future children they may have, he hoped that they would be influenced in the right way. He saw something in Tamar. He found a young girl named Tamar, and though the scripture records nothing of her background, she seems to have been chosen because of the good influence she would have over her husband and future children. We know that when we see the whole picture, as we are privileged to do from the biblical record, we can see, we can always trace God's sovereignty better backwards than we can forwards, because we do know that Tamar is included in the, in the line of our Savior, he, from the Messianic line, she must have been the most suitable choice for Er, in spite of her later questionable actions, which come out of her being a Canaanite. That's how she was raised. That's how they thought. Her husband was a rebellious son. Girls, I want you to know there's nothing worse than being married to a rebellious son. And I tell young people, you go and look at how people treat their parents before you ever say, I do or I will. Go see how that boy treats his mother and his sisters. And go see how that girl submits to her father and her, her mother. It is Whether their parents are lost or saved, you see what kind of respect and honor, because the scripture tells us, doesn't it? Honor your father and mother. And, and people that will bad talk their parents and put them in a horrible light and be disobedient and disrespectful to them, guess who that will transfer to one day? It'll be you they're talking about one day. It'll be you that they put in a bad light one day. 
this rebellious son was probably bitter at the marriage arrangements his father made. The Bible tells us simply in verse 7, what a, what a power, astounding verse. And heir Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. And the question, I know you rise, what did he do? I mean, for God to kill this guy, what could he have done? I mean, there's worse, you know, we don't know what worse things. There are all kinds of things in this chapter that God didn't kill people over. What was it that he killed him for and his brother? We aren't given any specifics, but it must have had to do with his responsibilities and the position of being the firstborn. He had no intent, uh, interest in these matters. He had no interest in the marriage his father had arranged, especially in the spiritual prophecies of a Messiah. That meant nothing to him. He didn't probably believe it or care about it. And why his daddy harped on that when he was not the person he should be? He, you know, he's all got... And parents, do you realize when you talk scripture and prophecy and promises, but you live like the devil, that doesn't mean a thing to your children. You come to church and sing immortal, invisible, God only wise, and criticize everything about the church and the pastor and the and live any way you want to, do you think that, you're, that, that, that somehow or another they're going to get salvation out of all of that and the love of the things of Christ? Judah was not what he should be, but he held on to the messianic promise, and his sons were, so what? You know, it was like Esau. What am I going to do with the birthright? I'm hungry. You know, that's, that's the attitude of when, when hypocrisy is lived out so vividly in the home. He learned... It leaned heavily toward Canaanite paganism. Henry Morris writes, in view of Onan's Ur's brother's specific sins, sin which later resulted in his death also, and the, the Bible's a little more clearer why the Lord killed him, it seems most probable that Ur's sin had to do with his refusal to consummate the marriage. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. He, was, he didn't want a Messiah to be born. He didn't want to have to, anything to do with that kind of thing. So he just would not uh, consummate the marriage. And what he was saying is to God, it's one thing to say no to your mother or daddy. It's another thing to say no to God. I will not have any part of anything you want to do with me. I'll run my life, thank you very much. And what does God show everybody by the take? God is sovereign. His word says all souls are mine. There's not a person on earth who'd be breathing today if God didn't allow him to. And he can take those souls at any time he decides to. Do you know that? It is appointed to man once to die and after this to judgment. Do you know that you will die exactly when God wants to and how he wants to take you? And it may be to teach others with fear and trembling about there is a God in heaven who does all things well. He takes this man because he would not obey the Lord and he takes his brother. Whatever the other circumstances are, that speaks, doesn't it? It was obvious, too, that to others that God took them. John Phillips writes, her, name's mean, her name, Tamar, means palm tree. It is suggestive of beauty and slenderness and grace. From the rest of the story and from the position God gave that woman in the messianic line, we conclude that she must have been a woman of character and noble aspirations despite her pagan birth and her background. She seems to have entered into the messianic hope of which no doubt Judah had spoken to her when negotiating the marriage of, between her and her son. No doubt Judah said, do you know that through us the, the one true God is going to send the Messiah? And it could be very well, Tamar, that through your lineage this Messiah would come. 
That's heady news to a pagan girl who didn't know her right hand from her left hand about the creator God of the universe. And that a savior might somehow, her life and actions and mothering might have an effect on a savior being come into the world. Whatever actually happened or didn't happen, this we know, that God took him. The Lord slew him, the Bible says. We're not told how, but it was an unmistakable act of God. Odin, his brother, repeated the same sin and was judged by God as well. The the repetition of God's judgment shows, I am the God of heaven and what I say will stand. That God does not always execute justice immediately does not mean that he will not. Do you understand that? Some people get the erroneous idea, well, that's just an incidental event here or there. And because God does not judge swiftly and the same way the same time, people... Uh, erroneously conclude, well, that's just a, a fluke, or that's, that, that's not the way God is. But I want you to know that there is a God in heaven. His word will stand forever. What he has spoken, he will come to bring to pass in spite of man, and even if it makes every one of us liars, the scripture tells us. Odin refused to do so. To, to the, the culture of the day which God temporarily in the mosaic economy had if a second son was in the family unmarried and his older brothers died he should marry the the brother's wife to bring about uh, his his legacy oh he didn't want to have anything to do with it no not me you can sign up all kinds of contracts you can go through the wedding ceremony but i'm not going to be married to her like his brother odin had no concern for the coming messiah i can see judah pleading don't you know what this means Don't you know that the Messiah is going to come one day? These boys could care less about a Messiah or their daddy's religion. All they saw was hypocrisy. And sadly, sadly, that's the case of many professing Christians today. It's just something that goes on on Sunday in the South. Is it Sunday in the South? People are sitting in churches singing just as I am. But it, it, it means no real thing to the children. Because mother and daddy, Monday through whenever, do whatever they want to. Just like the Canaanites. What they sing about and say amen to on Sunday morning doesn't really ever do anything in their choices, their principles, what they're striving for, their image, their language, how the father treats the mother, vice versa. And so we raise moral degenerates. Crossing T's, dotting I's, but in the heart just as wicked as hell itself. And the first opportunity to act upon it, we do. May I pause and say here that, that many people, any, some, maybe even some professing believers and followers of Christ, live as if they have no concern in the coming Messiah either. We hear and we hold very dear to the imminent return of Jesus Christ in this congregation. Would you say amen right there? I mean, we we say we believe it. The Lord Jesus Christ could come at any split second. But on a practical day-to-day level, basis of living, how does that glorious doctrine change what you're going to do this afternoon and tomorrow, your business dealings and your relationships with one another? What does Peter say it should do? 
Peter says it should cause us to watch and wait and walk circumspectly because the Lord is coming is at hand. And we should purify ourselves with this blessed hope. I remind us, Church of Christ, that the Apostle tells us we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Many believers or professing believers have no interest now in this, the chosen bride of Christ, let alone the coming Christ, who he loves and he bled and died for in the present, whom he, he gave himself for. They have little or no fellowship with her, let alone spiritual intimacy. A Messiah coming, okay, ho-hum. They have their own agendas, their own desires, in turn from God's revealed plan and truth. Judah's example was like one of so many fathers to their sons. Do as I do, not as I do as I say, not as I do. Make better choices than I did, son, but don't scrutinize any part of his secret life. Knowing biblical truth and not living it out is often worse in the long run than abject ignorance of spiritual things. I'm convinced that Judah's wife and boys knew that he preached one thing and lived another as a principal for 19 years and as a minister of the gospel and in this congregation for 35 years. I can't tell you the times I've sat across from teenage boys who've told me, Brother Lamb, you have no idea what my father's like in private. You see one thing. I hear the language. I see how he treats my mother. There I am appealing to the young boy to, to surrender to the Lord. And all he can see is the hypocrisy in the life of his parents. A parent's vision can be blurred by pride and so-called parental love. And we'll not read the verses here, but it, it seems as if Judah amazingly blames the death of his two sons on Tamar. It's your fault. My boys are dead. And Tamar there is, becomes the, the brunt of, of Judah's ire. And he's the one that, that married a pagan one. Woman, He's the one that abdicated the training of his sons to this Canaanite woman. If he'd been a better example and been more thorough in his teaching about the coming of Messiah and let that transform his daily walk, maybe Er and Onan would all have a different perspective of spiritual things. Judah's pagan wife dies, and obviously he dearly loves her because he, he mourns and grieves deeply for her in his spiritual condition. Here comes Hera, his... Friend, tell you what, Judah, you've had such a hard time. Your, your sons and your wife, my goodness, you've been through so much. Why don't you go to sheep shearing time? Go to Timnath. Sheep shearing time was a big time of party. After they would shear the sheep, they would party, and, and it would just be a big carnival atmosphere. Go down and have a good time. Forget about everything. That's the world's antidote for all problems. Drink, take drugs, go to the bar. Go to, find somebody, do something, aban live in a, with abandon, just kick up your heels. I mean, you've had it so hard. He wasn't thinking of the coming Messiah when he came across. No wise excused Tamar's actions, but she was just doing how they did things. She dressed up as a temple prostitute, knowing that the father was his rod of authority, it would be like someone leaving their ID, their birth certificate, and their, and their debit card. He gives this woman unbelievably all these things. And as Satan is wont to do at the inopportune time, 
You know when Satan speaks, it's usually truthful or has a lot of truth to it. He just presents the facts, doesn't he? The horrible, ugly, bald facts. Obviously, she knew her father-in-law. She situates herself. He goes in, and and the rest that we we see in the story here, three months later, it all comes to light. Things don't always come to light in three months or three years or 30 years or 300 years. But can I give you something you can take home with you? Because we all need to be reminded of it. All things will come to light. All things will come to light. Judah realizes he ordered, when he heard the story that his daughter-in-law was expectant, he wouldn't, he kept her to the side and he orders her death and then he finds out that, that, that he's responsible. He acknowledges her and he cares for her and her child. We see there in verse 27, and it came to pass in the time of her travail, there were twins in her womb. This story is almost identical to Jacob and Esau. Tamar had twin sons, and the whole thing reminds us of that story. Both were boys, as well as Judah's living son, Shelah, became the fathers of large families in the tribe of Judah. One of their descendants is a man by the name of Phares, P-H-A-R-E-Z. He will be the ancestor of King David and eventually of the Lord Jesus Christ. Henry Morris writes, Tamar therefore had the distinction of being one of the few women whose names are listed in the official genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1 verse 3. The others are Rahab, Ruth, and one who had been the wife of Uriah, that is Bathsheba. Think about those ladies, if you will. It is remarkable that all four of these women were non-Jews, who had been won by other witnesses to the true faith of Jehovah, Tamar, a Canaanite, Rahab, a native of Jericho, and thus presumably also a Canaanite, Ruth was a Moabitess, and Bathsheba probably a Hittite, at least by marriage to Uriah, if not by birth. Each of the four came into the family of Judah and Israel by morally dubious means. Yet in spite of the apparent, apparent unsavory past of these women, each one became a strong and faithful believer in God in time. And God signally honored them by placing them in the genealogical line of the Messiah. Think about that. What grace. That's the way grace is, isn't it? It's immeasurable. It's incalculable. It's unexplainable apart from God's sovereignty. The free grace of God that no one could purchase. Not one life on earth is good enough to obtain it. No one is worthy of it. And yet it is freely lavished upon those whom God saves. The one was who in their early life, probably the most irreligious and carnal of them all, Rahab, has actually been included by the Holy Spirit in the great catalog of the heroes of faith in in Hebrews chapter 11. What a marvelous testimony to God's grace and the truth that God forgives past sins and brings new life. And let me close by saying this. Yes, we, we praise Him for His wide grace. The song we're about to sing tells us how, how wide His grace is. 
yet let no one presume upon that grace. We dare not presume upon the grace of God while it is rich and free and openly extended to us now at this time. For those who have heard the, the word of God, I want you to know this morning that God's grace is available to those who call on him. You may be calling on him out of horrible circumstances, some that, that, that you're not, you don't know how to get out of, and you might think you're not totally responsible for. And we're not here to examine the circumstances. We're here to examine God's grace. There comes a point in time in every life that you have to go, turn from what has happened, what you are, what you have done, and all the ramifications for that, and you cast yourself wholly upon the grace of God. Another list will be read from one day. The books will be open. And the Lamb's Book of Life. Will your name be read out in that day? Have you turned from your sin, acknowledging it and agreeing with God about your situation, resting wholly and solely and just totally upon the precious work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We urge you to do so. We turn you and point you to Jesus Christ, the Savior. He saves from sin. He saves, as one old preacher says, from the guttermost to the uttermost. He cleanses and sets us free and puts us on a firm foundation. And as the songwriter says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest Clean. That ugly word in the midst of that beautiful song, the foulest clean. His blood availed for me, the songwriters of testimony testify. I want you to know it availed for me. And let me say this morning, if God's grace can come to Chris Lamb, it can come to any person of the sound of my voice. Would you turn to Jesus Christ? Lord, we, we praise you for your mercy and grace. We have waded through some very weighty and sordid information here, but you've recorded it for us, and we pray that you would be greatly pleased to save sinners from this text today. What a marvelous thing that would be for you to save the lost in our midst. We beg you to. We, compa- we implore you to do so. May our Savior be greatly praised by those who turn to him. Lord, I know that this text could could speak to any number of situations we pray that your word would accomplish all that you intended to do because as the pastor of this beloved church i know this is the text you had for us today and we thank you for that lord we pray that you give us our portion warn each one of us bless each one of us save the lost among us may we walk in mercy and grace toward each other lord laying aside all that would hinder or bother or, or hold away revival and blessing in your church, we pray in Jesus' matchless name.